You're listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you need a copy of God's Word, uh, just slip up your hand. Christian Norton's walking through the aisles. He's got extras. He'd be glad to hand you a hard copy of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we'll begin reading this morning. First Corinthians chapter three. If you are joining us for the first time, let me provide a little context. We're journeying through the book of First Corinthians. Uh, have been for several weeks. Paul is writing to a church that he planted in the pagan city of Corinth. Now, Corinth was not known for their superb morality. And as the church has progressed and grown, uh, the church has over time embraced the cultural values of the city of Corinth rather than of the word of Christ himself. The church is divided. And at least one of the reasons for the division that exists within the church is that these individuals have begun to rally around their favorite leaders, more specifically church leaders, that embody Corinthian values, that is church leaders who embody power and strength and rhetoric. They love the leaders that impress. They love the leaders that speak like the philosophers, the celebrity speakers of the city of Corinth. And what the church is doing is allowing their preferences and their pride and their wrongly placed allegiances to stir up quarrels or jealousy or factions. And what will happen for the remainder of chapter 3 especially, is that Paul wants to readjust their perspective on what it is a church is, what it is a church leader is, and what it is that the church's mission is. And so our aim this morning, we're going to begin by reading verses 1 through 4 uh, from last week, and then we're going to transition into verses 5 through 9 that we'll focus on this week. So look with me at verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not yet ready. For you're still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul... And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? That's last week's message. Now this week's, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God 
who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Let's pray. Father, we come to you asking that you would rightly be the center of this message, of this moment, of everything that we are as a church, as individuals. Father, we pray that we would place God, uh, we would place you in your rightful place on the throne of our lives, of our churches, of the sermon. God, we humbly submit ourselves to you asking that you guide, that you lead, that you would uh, bring into actuality the truth of this text in our hearts, that you, God, would give the growth, even in our uh, sinful, uh, wayward uh, souls, Lord, uh, who more readily drift away from you than to you, God. We pray that you would overcome us and that you would grow us closer to you, Father. I pray that you would use this sermon and that uh, I would be caught up in the joy of being filled with the Spirit as I say true things from the Scriptures, Father. We pray all these things in uh, mutual affirmation together. We want to hear from you uh, by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Rhetorical devices that Paul uses, asking the question in such a way, he's assuming the readers are missing the point. They have a misconception over the nature of what Paul was and what Apollos really was. The Corinthians had misunderstood what a church leader is. They've, they have understood their leaders to be owners of the church whom they pledged their allegiance to over and against one another. They've, they've focused so much on the leaders as the primary distinguishing mark of the success of a church that they've begun to say ridiculous things like, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos. We were introduced with the stupidity of this language in chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul is just amazed that they would say such a thing. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 12, what I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul has commented on the absurdity of anyone pledging allegiance to a man more than they've pledged allegiance to Christ himself. For anyone basing their, their spiritual life on a human more than they would base their spiritual life on God himself. And now Paul aims to really uh, adjust their perspective of what these leaders really are and really what we all really are. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Truth number one, if you're a note taker this morning, uh, the first truth that we see in this text is this. We are God's servants. Apollos and Paul 
as amazing as they were in their leadership and ministry in the first century churches, they were not the main characters of the movement. In fact, none of us, no human being, is the main character of the biblical story. Remarkably, there is no main character of the biblical story other than Jesus Christ himself other than God himself sovereign over the story. It's actually quite amazing to see how quickly the story moves on. Moses is used to do phenomenal things, wonderful things, big things. I mean, he's the dude, he's a big dude. And then he just dies and the story keeps going. (laughs) Because Moses was a part of the story, but he wasn't the center of the story. Paul and Apollos were amazing leaders in the church, but they were simply servants of the main character, servants of God himself. Now let's look at the word servants for just a moment. Now to be a servant in the house, by definition, is not to be the master of the house, isn't it? It is to follow the master's instructions for the business of the household. As we'll see later in the paragraph, the kind of servant Paul has in mind is particularly the kind of servant who works a field that is not his own field. He doesn't own the field that he works. He doesn't choose the kind of crops that he plants. Rather, he labors according to the wishes of the one who owns the field. And he works for the wages that the master over the field has Promise. So he has no authority of his own to do a different task than that which the master has given. No authority to plant anything different than the master has provided. He's a servant under the owner. And Paul therefore emphasizes, neither I nor Apollos am the owner of any church. Verse 9 comes back to form a kind of uh, inclusio, a kind of sandwich to the argument, repeating again the same words in a different way. Verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Here the analogy fills out with a little bit more clarity. Paul understands the Corinthian church to be God's field. They are the field in which Paul and Apollos labor, but they are not Paul and Apollos' field. Brothers and sisters, this is what Paul and Apollos were called to be. This is what you and I are called to be. We are servants under the authority of a good master, a good king, a good ruler, of all the universe. The concept of servanthood, the disposition of being a servant, it flows right out of the ministry of Jesus himself. Jesus' disciples were always arguing among themselves who would be the greatest, who would sit on the thrones in the kingdom of God. And Jesus was constantly calling them back to the reality of, of what it was they were really called to. Mark chapter 10, 42, Jesus calls them and says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, 
he actually owns the field. (laughs) He's actually the master, yet Jesus becomes a servant to save his servants from getting the wages they really deserved, which was death eternally. Jesus was the one who deserved to be the master who stepped into the position of servant so that all of us would learn that we're supposed to be servants and it's actually good for us because the only time that being a servant is bad is when you have a bad master. But no, we have a good master, a glorious master, a master who loves us so much he'd become a servant and die in our place. Let me pause right there and just ask a question. What does your relationship to God look like? Do your prayers reflect a humble disposition where you offer yourself in service to God? Or do your prayers more often reflect a prideful disposition where you're demanding God to be a better servant of you? In your prayers, are you most often demanding God to be a better servant of you and your wishes? Or are you asking God, how might I serve you more faithfully with my life? Would others see your ministry in this church or in your life as one where you are actively seeking ways to be a servant to others? Or would others see your presence in the church as one where you are always content to have other people serve you? And is our church family... Or is a church family the place where you are a consumer, primarily fed week in and week out? Or is our church family a group of people that you are a servant giving yourself to? This self-concept that Paul and Apollos has, this no, we are just servants. I believe that it is something that all of us are called to. We are not in charge. None of us here, we are not co-owners of St. Rose Community Church, not masters of our own lives. We are servants of God. And I pray that this will always be the truth of our elders, our deacons, our members, servants of God, serving in God's church and that we would never believe this to be a bad thing but always recognize this is an incredible thing which brings us to truth number two we are servants through whom God works right to to be a servant is a bad thing only if we have a bad master but we don't have a bad master we have a master who loved us to death a master who lavishes infinite grace upon us a a, a master who who desires our good and his glory we have a master who empowers and equips and invites us to participate in the most significant work in the world we have a master that invites us to enjoy the harvest of his field first corinthians chapter 3 Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Paul's not disparaging the work of Paul and Apollos here. He's saying this is incredible. The city, just consider for a moment, the city of Corinth, full of pagan, idol-worshiping people on their way to an eternal hell without the good news of Jesus. And Paul lands in the city with the best conceivable news in the world. People come to faith in Jesus. A church is born. And Apollos later becomes the primary teacher where he's shepherding them to believe more and more the best news in the world. And Paul and Apollos, were used by an eternal God to make an eternally significant difference 
in, the, in individuals' lives. I mean, let's just pause for a second and consider the fact that right now in heaven, there are Corinthians. Because God used the obedience, boldness, faithfulness of Paul and Apollos to get the message of Jesus to Corinthians. Right now, there are Corinthians resting in the eternal joy of the presence of their Savior because God worked through a person like Paul who had once been a persecutor of the church. We are not just servants of God. We get to be servants of God. We get to participate in mission more important than our retirement plans and more important than our career goals and more important than our bucket list. We get to participate in the gospel farming where the harvest is people's souls forever who will receive eternal life and join local churches and will continue the mission of God long after we are long God. Praise God. He invites us to become servants through whom he then carries out his work of offering himself to the nations. We are servants through whom God works. But obviously, not all of us are servants in exactly the same kind of way in God's field. Look at verse 5 again. What then is Apollos? What's Paul? Servants through whom you believed, comma, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Focus in on that phrase, uh, as the Lord assigned to each. Truth number three this morning. As servants... Our assignment is from God. As servants, our assignment is from God. So there's, there's a lot to do in the mission of God. The mission is always the same for all of us. We're, we're here to make disciples of all nations. The mission is always a reaching out uh, with the gospel of Jesus to our family and friends and coworkers and neighbors. Uh, it's always a teaching other what Jesus has taught us. It's always a church planting mission, a church strengthening mission. But our role in the mission is a role that God assigns to us. He is sovereign over our location. Sovereign over the way in which he uniquely gifted us. Sovereign over the opportunities that he has or has not given us. Sovereign over the circumstances he's brought us through and is bringing us through and will bring us through. He's sovereign over your very presence in the room this morning. As we'll see later, emphasized in 1 Corinthians, the beauty of a local church is its unified diversity. The way God takes you and does eternal things through you. First Corinthians 12, 4. Uh, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. A varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. God has made you uniquely you. And he's gifted you in particular ways that will open up particular doors for discipling others and serving the mission of this local church and of the, the glory of God to the nations. He's made you in ways to do ministries he's not made me to do. And he's opened doors to you in the lives of people he hasn't opened for me. 
Paul was a church planter. He was a pioneer church planter who went to cities and situations where there was no gospel preaching church and he shared the gospel until a church was started and then he handed it off to someone else. And from what I can tell, Apollos, on the other hand, was different. He comes into the existing situation, a good teacher who spoke well and he begins to feed the flock. Was Apollos better than Paul? No. Was Paul better than Apollos? No. Both were servants living in obedience to the assignment God had given them. Have you ever stopped to consider in a spirit of humility and surrender, what is my assignment? Now, did Paul have a unique assignment? Absolutely. Is he the only Christian who is to receive an assignment from God? No. What is your assignment? Have you ever stopped to consider what it might be? Not everyone in the room is called to be a long-term missionary to the hardest to reach people in other countries. Places that have no Bible in their language. Not everyone in the room is called to learn a new language and to go and translate the scriptures into a, for a people who do not have it. Not everyone in the room is, is called to that. But would it be wise to assume that no one in the room has been assigned to such a ministry? If, would it be wise to assume that no one in this room ever will be assigned to such a task? If that's the case, won't the Great Commission stop with St. Rose, Louisiana? If that was the case in every church, would that not be the case that the Great Commission would just stop in their little locations? Not everyone in the rooms called to sell their home or move with a church planting team to a neighborhood or city with little gospel access. But would it be biblical to assume that no one in the room is? Not everyone's called to serve as an elder. Not everyone's called to serve as a deacon. Not everyone's called to foster care and adoption. Not everyone's called to be a preacher. Not everyone's called to serve our church in facility, maintenance, and upkeep. But is no one in the room? (laughs) Just plug that one in for me. (laughs) Is no one assigned to such thing? Paul and Apollo certainly had ministry assignments from the Lord that they understood to be from God, and then they poured their lives into those assignments, come what may, even if it meant beheading, which is what came to Paul ultimately because he pursued the assignment. Do you understand your assignment, right? Do you know what it is? And, 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 and do you even, uh, are you in a place where you're willing to accept an assignment other than the one you've already determined for yourself? Because I think that's the key, to have the sort of spirit and heart that says, Lord, you're the, the one who determines the assignment, not my preferences or desires, right? But your direction. And if so, how do you even determine what your assignment is? I mean, Paul's so confident about it. It seems like Apollos had an assignment from the Lord, and how do we determine it? I mean, Paul, that was easy. He resurrected Jesus, just showed up to him on the road. So what, is that what we're supposed to expect? I mean, how do we determine what the assignment is? Well, I think there's, there's multiple layers of affirmations that we see in the Scripture. We look for God to put a desire in our heart. We look for God to 
give us an aspiration to serve him in a particular way. Lord, take my desires. Make me desire the things that you desire for me, not the things that I desire for myself. Then we look for other spirit-filled Christians to affirm that aspiration in our hearts. The spirit is not going to lead you in a direction that he doesn't confirm to any other spirit-filled person on the planet. If you're the only spirit-filled person on the planet saying the spirit's leading me to do this, that's probably a spirit but not the spirit. If you catch my drift... Part of the affirmation in Paul's life is the whole church in Antioch said, you should do this. We look not only for uh, desire in our heart, affirmation of other Christians, we look for God-ordained opportunity we can step into. We watch for needs, we watch for open doors, and we ask, how can I join what God's doing with the giftings he's given me? What makes sense? And along the way, we strive to never forget that we are not the master of our ministry or the master of our lives by God's grace. He gives the assignments and we humbly put our lives on the table over and over again, praying the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Not my will, but yours be done. And then we just get after it, don't we? We get to work. There are a lot of individual assignments that we all have in common, right? Don't sit around and wait for the burning bush to tell you to do something. And in the meantime, do nothing. No, God's been pretty clear. Your assignment, no matter where it is, whether it be as a preschool teacher, as a grocery store manager, your assignment is preach Christ crucified. Share the word of the cross, pray, read, serve the church, give your time and your talents and your money for the gospel spreading through your local church. You love people, you listen, you share joys, you bear burdens, you fulfill the one another commands. You be hospitable, right? We use our homes as a base of operation for ministries, not self-indulging spaces for our own complacency, right? We're just on mission where we are. Even when our specific assignment is unclear, the nature of Christian ministry and faithfulness is not ambiguous, We don't twiddle our thumbs waiting around doing nothing because we're waiting for the big mystical assignment to plant a church in some country we've never heard of. We get to work in the field we're in with the humble disposition. We'll do whatever you want us to do. This moment, this ministry, these people in this room is your assignment right now. So we humble ourselves as servants of God in God's field and we do whatever he's very clearly already commanded us to do in the word. Don't look for the mystical thing he hasn't commanded if you're ignoring the very black and white things he has commanded, right? We are servants of a God who has been very clear. And as we get after it, and as we with joy and peace pour our lives out to God, We do so trusting that it's actually God, the one who does the work. Truth number four, as servants, we trust the results to God. We're very happy servants. We're very happy servants because we're not worried that in the end, the harvest will not grow as it's supposed to grow. Because not only is our master the one who gives the assignment, our master is the one who actually accomplishes the assignment. (laughs) Verse 3, I planted, or sorry, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God who gives the growth. But what, what Paul is doing, he's just embracing an analogy that Jesus clearly handed to us. That your life as a Christian very much looks like the life of a hardworking farmer. Mark chapter 4, verse 26, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is as if man 
should scatter seed on the ground, and he sleeps, and he rises night and day, and then the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of the ear, but when the grain's ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Christian ministry is a lot like farming. If you are discouraged this morning because your evangelistic work does not seem to be producing the results that you desire in the time that you desire, remember you're a farmer under a master who is both master and the one who causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall. Planting is hard work by the sweat of our brow through backbreaking work and long hours. We till the ground, we spread the seed, we spread the fertilizer, we keep the weeds at bay. But one thing we can't do is make the sun come up or make the rain fall. God does that. He gives the growth. He gives the grace. And then when there's harvest to enjoy, we give him the glory. Right? We don't say, man, I tilled that ground really well. Right? No, we say, praise God, the rain came. And that life burst from that dead ground in a way that I don't even understand how it works. We don't trust our ability or our power, our persuasiveness to produce a soul saved for eternity. We don't trust anyone's charisma, gifting, or ingenuity, or, or wisdom to grow a church. St. Rose Community Church, even now, I don't know if you realize this, but our church is growing. We're baptizing people regularly. We're adding church members regularly. We're We're seeing people come to faith. God's actively doing miracles in the lives of people. And it's not my doing. It's not Drew's doing. It's not Stephen or Ray's doing. It's not the doing of any hotshot individual who's just really racking in the converts here. God is working through servants in this room. He's he's working through you to get the gospel to those who don't know it. And then he's sprouting life in their souls through your faithfulness to speak the truth of the gospel. It's one of my greatest personal fears that I would ever lead a church that would ever catch the Corinthian disease of man-centeredness rather than God-centeredness. I feel Paul's concern when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and power. Why? I'm intentionally doing things. Paul says, I'm intentionally not going to use that thing which will really entertain people when I talk. I'm going to intentionally not do that. Why? Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And here's Paul saying, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Verse 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, only God gives the growth. Verse 9, we are God's fellow workers, you're God's field. As servants, right, we're free from assessing our value or our worth based upon our productivity or our ability to see any good happen in anyone else. No, we're free just to do what our master told us to do. And then rest that he's the one who actually does it. As servants, we trust the results of God. But that doesn't mean that we don't get to celebrate and enjoy the fruit of our labor when God brings harvest. I mean, look 
Look at verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Truth number five, our last truth for this morning is this. As servants, we receive rewards from our God. We, we labor, we trust the results to God. We're just servants. It's God working through us. But God, he does reward our labor. I'm, I'm not speaking, sometimes I feel like in, in, in our theological circles, we're even afraid to talk like this because of the prosperity gospel preachers who twist the word to make it seem like you're going to receive a $53 million jet by giving just enough money. But, but what that does is, is that we're fearful of talking about the Lord rewarding anything, the Lord uh, uh, bestowing blessings on us at all for faithfulness and for, for seeing God do something in our lives. God does reward our labor. There's joy to be had. There's harvest to be gathered. There's reward rewards to be received for laboring in the assignment which God has placed us in. And I believe Paul has in mind both wages in this life and in the life to come. Paul got to witness a church come into being in a city where the whole world would have said, no way. He got to baptize new believers, see miracle salvations, enjoy relationships with spiritual brothers and sisters. He's constantly thanking God for. He got to enjoy using the gifts of the Lord that the Lord had bestowed upon him. I think Paul enjoyed teaching the Bible. (laughs) I think it was a blessing to him. One of the things that I pray every Sunday before I stand up and preach, God, help me to enjoy the nearness of the Spirit that I only feel when I'm standing up to rely on you to say true things. Like, this is good for me. I like doing this. This, There's a blessing and a joy and a goodness of standing up and God using me for something. But more than that, Paul looked forward to an eternity where he would forever enjoy the fruit of his labor but he knew this and we know this as gospel people we know without jesus none of our labor secures any reward without jesus any labor in good deeds is to the glory of ourselves and it's condemnable before god we owed god a great debt we owed god the price of our sin death eternally but god paid the debt in the person and work of Jesus who died for us and rose again so that through faith in Jesus, not only are we forgiven of all our sins and promised eternal life, we are now invited into a work, a labor and a mission of making disciples of the nations, which is stinking hard, but stinking worth it. Because you get to see spiritual life come into a person. And then in discipleship, you get to watch that person go from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. And and we get to rejoice in a harvest that we literally watch God do in people. If you have not had the joy of watching someone grow in spiritual maturity as you've labored to help them, you're missing out on one of the most precious realities of the Christian life. As servants, we rejoice in the rewards from our master both now and forevermore. And listen, the fact, the fact that God rewards his children, though he doesn't need his children to do anything for him, is just a testimony to how gracious he is. He doesn't need us to work the field. He doesn't need our labor, doesn't need our work, doesn't need our ministry to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in the world. 
but yet he blesses and rewards faithful servants. Why? Because he's gracious. I've used this analogy before. It would be like me, me giving an allowance to my child for helping me do a task that I could have done quicker without their help. <laughs> right? Why am I including them and giving them an allowance that I actually didn't need them to do something for me because I love them and I'm growing them up and giving them things that bless them and including them in the work and I care about their growth. I mean, God is offering that kind of relationship with you, saying, come labor in my field and I'll give you wages for your labor, good gifts of good fruit for the hard work. Here's the recap. We are God's servants. We are servants through whom God works. As servants, our assignment is from God. We trust the results to God. We receive the rewards from our God. So let me, let me close uh, with just a few questions for you to meditate upon, some self-reflection, basically just turning these truths into questions. Firstly, are you a servant of God and his church? Would your life be characterized as a weekly consumer of spiritual goods? Or would your life be characterized as a servant for the spiritual good of others in the church? Number two, what is your ministry assignment? What are the very obvious things that God has commanded for you to be doing? What might be some particular things that are unique to you? that God is leading you to pursue. Number three, are you trusting the God who gives the growth? It's one thing to trust God for uh, the moment of evangelism. It's another thing to trust God for the 1,000th moment of evangelism with the same person. (laughs) And it feels like you're never going to see any sprout of growth, ever. The farmer analogy works because it's the kind of thing where you faithfully do the same thing every single day before you see anything sprout at all. Trusting and hoping and praying that God's the one who will do it. Are you trusting the God who gives the growth? And number four, lastly, are you recognizing and rejoicing in God's rewards for his servants? They're all around us. The problem is, is that Satan's scheme against us is that he directs us to all the things that we think that are wrong rather than directing us to all the things that are actually miracles happening around us in real time. In people's lives, in our own heart, and the fact that this church exists at all, it is easy for us to be hypercritical rather than hyperjoyful at the good gifts of grace that have been poured out all around us. And so let's, let's close with a word of prayer that the Lord would help us to answer these questions honestly and that he would shape us. Father, we love you and we give glory to you who are the giver of growth. I sang that song, Speak, O Lord, this morning and it was so loud, the walls are shaking with all the peoples praying for you to grow your church, but I can't help but remember singing that song with about 15 people, 16 people, unsure of whether you would do anything good or miraculous in this church, in this place, in this town. 
And so, Father, I just want to take a moment to give you all the glory for any and every good thing we've experienced since the planting of this church eight years ago. Father, what, is, what are we but servants? Nothings. But, Father, you give the growth, and you have, and we praise you for it. We pray that you would help us to continue as humble servants. In Jesus' name, amen.